Two U.S. enemies greeting President Trump in the new year. The lead starts right now. Facing threats from Iran and from North Korea, while seemingly preoccupied with impeachment, can President Trump turn his attention away from Washington to deal with these new menacing moves? As the calendar turns to 2020, Senator Bernie Sanders announces a bonanza, the massive fundraising hall just a few weeks away from the Iowa caucuses. Plus, they're calling them fire NATOs, the new threat from raging deadly wildfires that have evacuated thousands and is only getting worse. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today with our world lead, two of America's most dangerous adversaries, the leaders of Iran and North Korea, testing President Trump. Iran today declaring it is prepared for war if necessary and vowing its military is strong enough to break the United States. The escalating tensions heating up during a dramatic 48-hour siege of the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad by an Iranian-backed militia. New images showing the extent of the damage inflicted on the American embassy as more U.S. service members are reportedly on their way to that embassy. This, as North Korea is warning, the world will witness a, quote, new strategic weapon, one feared to be a nuclear weapon. The regime also dismissing any talk of denuclearization. Here's how Richard Haas, a top former Republican diplomat, explained it to The New York Times, quote, after three years of no international crises, Mr. Trump is now, quote, facing one with Iran because he has rejected diplomacy, and another with North Korea because he has asked too much of diplomacy. But as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports for us now, despite these threats, President Trump seems preoccupied with impeachment. With his impeachment trial pending, President Trump is airing the same 2019 grievances about Democrats in the new year. What the Democrats did in the House was a disgrace. Claiming today that if this happened to a Democrat, everybody involved would long ago be in jail. And it would be considered the crime of the century. But as the president is now facing a Senate trial and re-election bid, America's adversaries seem to be taking notice. It's time to shake the rust off America's foreign policy. Promising that on the campaign trail in 2016, Trump is now facing challenges from both Iran and North Korea. An Iran-backed attack on the outer walls of the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad is now under control. But today, the defense secretary warned there could be additional threats. We will act in response to actions by uh, Iran or its proxies, and we will act to preempt any attacks on our forces, our personnel. Iran's recent behavior undermines Trump's June claim that his sanctions turned Iran into a very different nation. You said Iran is a different country. Do you still hold that opinion? Oh, absolutely. In another potential setback, North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un is now threatening to expand his country's nuclear power and unveil what he's calling a new strategic weapon. Kim didn't offer specifics, and he hasn't made good on his threat to send the U.S. a Christmas gift if North Korea didn't get sanctions relief. But the dictator's defiant statements undercut Trump's claim that there is no longer a nuclear threat from North Korea. I hope his Christmas present is a beautiful vase. That's what I'd like, a vase. He did sign an agreement talking about denuclearization. I think he's a man of his word, so we're going to find out. 
Now, Jake, when the president was speaking with reporters, he described what he signed with Kim Jong-un as a contract, like if it was a real estate deal, which, of course, it was not. It was actually a non-binding agreement. It talked about the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which, as you know, means something very differently to North Korea than it does to the United States. So essentially what White House officials are saying is they are just waiting to see what it is that North Korea and Iran do next. All right, Caitlin Collins traveling with the president. Thank you so much. CNN's Arwa Damon is on the ground for us in Baghdad, Iraq. And Arwa, is there concern that this militia could restart the siege? Yes, and let's also keep in mind that they right now have only to a certain degree paused their protest because they're giving parliament a week to begin negotiating and addressing a bill that would be dealing with America's true presence. And let's also not forget, Jake, that Iran has a number of very powerful proxies on the ground here that also could potentially pose a threat to uh, U.S. military installations and U.S. interests. And Arwa, this militia, it's part of Iraq's security forces, and it seems as though the Iraqi military writ large just uh, allowed the militia to attack the embassy compound. What's your sense of the Iraqi army's willingness to protect the U.S. embassy. And therein, Jake, lies one of the many complexities plaguing this nation. The fact that this paramilitary force is largely made up of these former Shia militias, many of whom are also very politically powerful. The question is not just regarding the Iraqi security forces' willingness to protect the embassy. And remember, the Iraqi government was incensed at America's targeting of this group that took place on Sunday, but also whether or not they are capable and willing to take on this paramilitary force. To quote one of the members of the Iraqi security apparatus who was at the embassy location, he said, look, what were we supposed to do? If we had tried to confront them, we would have potentially ended up with a bloodbath that we would not be able to dial back, Jake. Hmm. Ara Damon in Baghdad, thank you so much and stay safe. Joining me now is Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey. He's the top Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator, uh, good to see you. Uh, Just a reminder of viewers, you've been a a frequent critic of the Iranian regime. You opposed the Obama-era nuclear pact with Iran. How would you like to see the Trump administration respond to what's going on in Iraq? Well, Jake, the problem with the Trump administration's maximum pressure uh, campaign is that it is only sanctions and no effort to create an international coalition to bring Iran back to the negotiating table and deal with its nuclear program. So it's like a pressure cooker. If a pressure cooker doesn't have a release valve, it ultimately explodes. So what we've seen with the president's maximum pressure campaign, uh, without any efforts on diplomacy, is the consequences of Iran uh, actually creating a shorter nuclear breakout time than it did before. Uh, We've seen the circumstances under which Iran is attacking international uh, commerce in the Strait of Hormuz. We see Iran having a land bridge into Syria to attack our ally, the state of Israel. We see Iran in naval exercises with Russia and China, two countries who previously were working Mm. with us to limit Iran's nuclear influence. Uh, And you you see the attack that took uh, the death of an American contractor. So and and now uh, on its related forces uh, on our embassy. So uh, this is not changing Iran. Uh, So challenging Iran is one thing. 
but having the strategic and diplomatic efforts to get them to the table. Sanctions are a tool to ultimately get to your goal, which is to stop Iran's nuclear program. But for that, you need to have a negotiation. Defense Secretary uh, Mark Esper said today that Iran might attack the U.S. embassy in Baghdad again uh, through their militia, through their proxies, or or maybe some other attack. Uh, And if Iran does, uh, the regime will, quote, likely regret it. Do you think Iran at this point is afraid of military action from the United States or do you think that they don't think that President Trump would be willing to do it? I think they'll still be calibrated in their responses. But the problem with this tit for tat is at one point is going to be a miscalculation. And when we have that miscalculation, uh, we're going to be uh, in a regrettable uh, set of potential military activities Uh, and military engagement that can spiral in a way that leads us uh, to an unauthorized war. And so uh, this is why creating a diplomatic surge right now, I mean, uh, I've spoken to representatives of our allies, Great Britain, France, uh, Germany, and others, uh, who are ready to join with us, I believe, in an effort to bring Iran back to the negotiating table. But in this regard, I see no effort by the administration trying to match their maximum pressure with a surge in diplomacy. With a way, an, an off-ramp for the Iranians. Iran, does, Iran does support this uh, militia uh, that the Pentagon concluded was responsible for the death of an American contractor. Do you think President Trump was right to order the strike on Sunday in retaliation for the contractor's death, which then sparked this attack on the embassy, according to the militia? Well, I don't know the set of options that were given to the president. Uh, Obviously, uh, a response needed to be had. Whether this was the appropriate response, uh, the the most intelligent response, uh, the most limited response necessary to show that there was going to be a consequence for any such attacks uh, is not in the portfolio of uh, answers that I have because I don't have all the access to the Department of Defense initiatives that they presented to the president. I do believe you needed to respond. But once again, even in the aftermath of a response, what I hear the Secretary of Defense is talking uh, about military actions. What I need to see is the Secretary of State uh, traveling to Europe to our allies and joining and creating a coalition to bring Iran back to the negotiating table. That is what's missing in this regard. The U.S. still has about 5,000 service members and others, contractors, in Iraq. Many in the Iraqi government have said the U.S., should get out? Should we? Should the U.S. withdraw? No, I I think it would be uh, an enormous collapse of Iraq after so much uh, blood and national treasure that has been spent in Iraq. If we withdraw, virtually every other Western country that is participating in Iraq will withdraw. Uh, Iran, which already has enormous influence uh, in Iraq, uh, might very well devour it. The protests that you see in Iraq are largely against Iranian influence. So I don't take the attack on the embassy as a statement of Iraqi sentiment. I take it as obviously Iran's surrogates. So you have to calibrate. What are you going to do if you totally withdraw, both in your security interests within the region, as well as standing up Iraq uh, against Iranian influence? I think that would be a huge mistake. And that's an issue that I hope the administration is working over very arduously as a vote in parliament uh, seeks to be taking place uh, as early as next week. Let me ask you uh, about North Korea. President Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, tweeted, quote, how to respond to Kim Jong-un's threatening New Year's remarks. The U.S. should fully resume all canceled or downsized military exercises in South Korea 
hold congressional hearings on whether U.S. troops are truly ready to, quote, fight tonight. If, if North Korea does conduct a nuclear test soon or a t- test of a nuclear weapon, what would you advise President Trump to do? Well, uh, I do believe that having canceled the military exercises was a, uh, a enormous gift to Kim Jong-un uh, without any benefit. He took him from an international pariah and has made him acceptable now in the international community. And he's weakened our sanctions regime because people think we're engaged with North Korea. So why shouldn't they? And so you have to resume the sanctions regime and you have to engage China vigorously because China is probably the key to whether or not you can have a successful outcome with North Korea. Uh, None of that, from my perspective, is going on right now. Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, thanks so much and Happy New Year to you, sir. Happy New Year to you and all your viewers. With just over a month until the Iowa caucuses, voters are showing the Democratic presidential candidates the proverbial money. Who tops the donor list next? Then, San Francisco heat. President Trump blaming Nancy Pelosi for California's homeless crisis. But political attacks aside, what is fueling this humanitarian crisis. Stay with us. In today's 2020 lead, Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden's campaign just announced he raised $22.7 million in the fourth quarter of 2019. That's his highest yet in this race, but it does fall short of the massive haul for Senator Bernie Sanders and even the fourth quarter for Pete Buttigieg. As CNN's Jeff Zeleny reports with Iowa, 32 days away, the money gives a sense of who might be in this race for the long haul. Finally, it's 2020, and Bernie Sanders is starting the new year with a bang. Announcing today that he raised more than $34 million in the final three months of last year. A muscular tally likely to make him the top fundraiser in the Democratic field. But Joe Biden also recorded his biggest fundraising amount yet, saying today that he raised $22.7 million in the fourth quarter boosted by doubling his online contributions. That was just shy of Pete Buttigieg, who announced he raised $24.7 million. One month and one day before the Iowa caucuses opened the voting, those three leading candidates rushed to release their fundraising tallies as a sign of strength. Campaigning in Iowa, Sanders said it proved his grassroots support is thriving. We need to transform our economy and have a government which works for all of us not just wealthy campaign contributors. Sanders' total came from 1.8 million small-dollar contributions, his campaign said, with his individual donations now surpassing 5 million. Andrew Yang also making a big showing, raising $16.5 million, a significant jump from 10 million in the third quarter. Their Democratic rivals have until the end of the month to report their fundraising, but none are likely to surpass another candidate in the race, President Trump whose campaign said today he raised $46 million over the last three months of 2019. The president is playing a pivotal role in the Democratic primary. Biden is making the case he's the strongest candidate to take on Trump. Whether eight years of Donald Trump will, I think, in a fundamental way, change the nature of who we are. We can't let that happen. Biden winning a key endorsement today from Iowa Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer. Abby, thank you, thank you, thank you for having me. A Democrat who won her seat in 2018 in a district Trump carried. Today, Julian Castro becoming the latest candidate to step aside. The former San Antonio mayor and housing secretary in the Obama administration bowing to political reality. I've determined that it simply isn't our time. So after raising all that money now, Jake, the candidates are starting to spend it. You can see behind me here a house in Grinnell, Iowa. Bernie Sanders is just taking the stage here. He is uh, trying to rally his volunteers and a lot of staff members as well. For the next month, 
They will be canvassing across the state to get out their vote. Also, the state of Washington TV ads. Amy Klobuchar also here making her case. Jake, you can feel the energy here in the new year. Finally, this campaign has reached its calendar year of 2020. Yep, Jake, 2020. Here we go. <laughs> Jeff Zeleny, thanks so much. Uh, so let's talk about this, because Joe Biden tops a lot of the polls, especially the national polls, not necessarily the state-by-state, state, Iowa and New Hampshire. But we have Bernie Sanders with a colossal haul and five million individual donors, which is huge. It's- and even Pete Buttigieg eclipsing him in fundraising. It matters, doesn't it? The money, absolutely, because what it means is... Will you have the dollars to go on the airwaves in the four early states in addition to having the staff on the ground? And one of the most important things, you know, you're gonna, they're going to have to pivot very quickly to the Super Tuesday contest. So we've already seen Bloomberg put staff on the ground there. So whoever has the most money is going to be able to put staff on the ground very quickly. And we shouldn't sleep on Sanders again. I mean, this is a, this is a big haul. He had a heart attack in mm-hmm. October. Since then, uh, not only has his health revived, since then he said 1.8 million people contribute to his campaign, 40,000 people alone donated on the last day of the fourth quarter. The average donation, $18.53. And he's also pointed out with 5 million donors, uh, if every one of them gave him $27, that's a billion dollars. That's huge. That's huge. I mean, Sanders has shown that he's a formidable candidate in this race, and he's also shown the strength of his small donor base, especially at a time when right now in the primary, one of the biggest debates is how candidates are bringing in money, how they're raising it, and what type of donors they're going to. So now the Sanders campaign can say, look, you know, we aren't going to be fighting with our arms tied behind our back. We can do it with small donor donations to compete with President Trump. We don't have to rely on those wealthy donors that people like Biden and Mayor Pete have relied on. I even wonder, Aisha, is it even right to call Joe Biden the front runner if, if he's being eclipsed in, in fundraising by Buttigieg and, and uh, by Bernie Sanders? And Bernie has this huge fundraising uh, donor base. And also the state by state polls show that it's really fluid and the voters haven't coalesced around a, a Democrat yet. Yeah, I think that what has happened with Biden is that he's been able to remain fairly consistent in just having support. Like, he has this base of support uh, that hasn't wavered a whole lot. And so I think that that has helped him, and also just the name recognition has helped him. And we'll see what happens. I mean, he was able to, even though he was eclipsed by Buttigieg and Sanders, he was able to bring in a considerable amount of money, which was good for him. This was kind of a a do-or-die moment for him, in a sense. Like, if he hadn't been able, if he hadn't been able to show that he could do the fundraising right now, that would have been a real problem for him. So I I think the issue, I think the thing with Joe Biden is that he just has the name out there and he has to show what he can do in Iowa. What's your take on all of this, Mary Kay? Yeah, I think the race is probably a little bit more exciting than national polling suggests when you look at these these fundraising numbers. Um, And despite the fact that as much as I think Bernie is out of touch with the general electorate and we'll see how that works out if he he makes it there as a primary candidate, I think he's he's sort of underrated and resilient. Um, And this shows that. The other interesting thing is this 46 million for Trump, and I, I say this sometimes just to tweak liberal friends, but it is worth thinking about. Um, he beat Democrats last time with not very much money. He was not the big spender in that race, right. and now he's got an economic juggernaut of good news behind him, whether you give him credit for that or not. And he's got this fundraising juggernaut behind him this time. It's going to be a different race, and that's an interesting thing to have to contend with. So he raised a lot more than any individual Democrat, but here was an interesting take on this from Dave Weigel, the Washington uh, Post. He says uh, the $46 million Trump raised in the fourth quarter, uh, the Democratic field is easily going to double it when you combine all of them. And that's really, really unusual, Weigel notes. The 2012 Republican field did not do that against Obama. And the 2004 Democratic field did not do that with George uh, W. Bush. 
Well, and also, let's not forget all that outside money, right? What we're talking about right now is the money that's being reported by these candidates. We're not including the money that Bloomberg uh, has put in not necessarily just to his campaign, but to things like voter registration and to going after Donald Trump. So I think once we get to a general election, I suspect the money will be there because, again, the imperative among Democrats to beat Donald Trump is so strong that there will be all kinds of outside groups and super PACs and you name it going against Donald Trump. I think the question is, when will they consolidate? Because especially going back to Sanders' numbers, now he has the money to stay in this race for a very long time, even if it becomes clear that he's not the nominee. Um, so I think Democrats are bracing for a very long primary fight. We should pour one out for Julian Castro, who withdrew yes. from the race today. Why, you know, on paper, he looked like a strong talent. He was good at the debates, but his, uh, his disapproval went, uh, took a real hit after he went after Joe Biden at that one debate. Yeah, and I think that the, the loss of Julian Castro, you know, Kamala Harris before, I mean, I think it raises real questions for Democrats. I mean, this was uh, or this was one of the most diverse fields that they have. And what you see is that that diversity is quickly kind of fading away. Um, and, I, and so I think that that kind of raises some questions about the way that this was handled, the way the Democrats handled their their primaries and whether this was the right way to go about it or whether that support is actually there for this diversity that they say and that the public says they want. Right. But the top four Democrats right now, according to polls, are all white. Biden, That's Sanders, right, yeah. Warren and Buttigieg. Stick yeah. around. We've got more to talk about. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi just responded to new emails directly tying President Trump to the hold on military aid to Ukraine. What that might mean for the impeachment trial in the Senate. That's next. Stay with us. The politics lead now amidst a presidential impeachment involving a withheld White House meeting for the president of Ukraine. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo canceled his planned trip to Ukraine, where he would have met with Ukrainian President Zelensky. The State Department saying Pompeo did so in order to monitor the violence surrounding the Iraqi embassy. This news comes as new reporting from the website Just Security is showing us what's behind some of those black lines in the redacted emails the Trump administration was forced to hand over to those requesting it, which include warnings from the Pentagon that the hold on military aid to Ukraine broke the law and that the decision withhold the aid came right from the top, as CNN's Sarah Murray reports. In the face of warnings from the Pentagon that holding nearly $400 million in Ukraine aid could be illegal, a top budget official made it clear the orders were coming directly from the president. Clear direction from POTUS to continue to hold, Michael Duffy, a top Office of Management and Budget official, wrote in an email to Defense Department Comptroller Elaine McCusker on August 30th. National security-focused website Just Security reviewed the unredacted emails, which had previously been released by the Trump administration with heavy redactions. The emails reportedly show that weeks earlier, McCusker flagged concerns that if the hold wasn't lifted soon, the Pentagon couldn't guarantee all of the money would reach Ukraine in time. The emails highlight the finger-pointing between OMB and the Defense Department over the freeze on Ukraine funds. Today, an OMB spokesperson said there was agreement every step of the way between DOD and OMB lawyers who were responsible for working out the details of the hold, in line with the president's priorities. Defense Department officials disagreed. One said, we were always concerned about the ramifications of holding the military assistance to Ukraine. The new details come as the impeachment proceedings remain in limbo. White House aides were in touch with Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's office over the holidays. But when the Senate returns tomorrow, McConnell plans to continue business as usual until Nancy Pelosi officially transmits the articles of impeachment. Other House Democrats seem to be suggesting they'd prefer 
never to transmit the articles. Fine with me. Now, Democratic lawmakers, including Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, are already seizing on these emails, pointing to them as evidence that any kind of fair trial in the Senate is going to need to include documents and witnesses from the Trump administration. Jake. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. And and, uh, this is how Nancy Pelosi just responded to these new emails in a tweet. Trump engaged in unprecedented total obstruction of Congress, hiding these emails, all other documents and his top aides from the American people. His excuse was a phony complaint about the House process. What's the excuse now? Why won't Trump and McConnell allow a fair trial? Uh, What what do you make of that argument, Aisha? Well, I I think that it is something that they're going to really drill down on. And these unredacted emails, they really do raise questions uh, because you had uh, the OMB general counsel uh, has sent a letter to uh, the GAO uh, basically saying uh, that they that they had held up this money and that the reason why they held up this money that but it didn't really make a big difference that DOD was telling them that there was no risk that this money wouldn't go out. But what you see in these emails is the direct opposite of yeah. what OMB said that they, that there was a risk that this money was going to be held up and that there was a legal concern. And this goes to the heart of what kind of Republicans have been saying that this was just people you know this was just the deep state they just disagreed with policy, but the concerns that were being raised were not about policy. They were about legal issues. People in the DOD thought that this was illegal, that they were withholding this money. And and here's this one unredacted email from August 30th of last year from Michael Duffy. He's a a Office of Management and Budget official to Elaine McCusker. She's a Pentagon comptroller. It mentions the, quote, clear direction from POTUS, that's president of the United States, to continue to hold. And this obviously flies right in the face of those who are saying there's nothing tying President Trump to this. Yeah. And I don't I don't think that many people actually believed that. Like the number of people they keep who, saying it, though, no, no, no. the House <laughs> Republicans. Not, yeah. I'm not talking about elected officials. I'm actually talking about normal people. real people. <laughs> normal, people. Um, normal people, the 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 number who think it was a perfect call and that there was nothing here is fairly low. The question is, again, whether that rises to the point that they want him removed. And that's a real open question. I'm not real sure what we're doing at this point. Are we going to transmit the articles of impeachment? Are we going to redo the thing in the House because we have more information? Are they just asking to be in control of the Senate's rules? And all of that sounded like gobbledygook. That's what it sounds like to normal people as well. And it will continue to sound like that, which is why this is sort of stagnant and has been for quite some time. And that part matters Mm -hmm. for these proceedings. But I would say yes and no, right? If Democrats keep it very simple, which is the president of the United States should tell the truth. Why are you blocking material evidence? Because every time in the last couple of weeks we've gotten new information, it undermines the president. So it looks like he's using his power to protect himself. And why won't you let these people come forward and testify? Now, when we went through the House proceedings, Republicans kept saying, well, these people don't have direct knowledge. Okay, so now Schumer is saying we want people with direct knowledge. This report gives us more information. The one from Just Security. Yes, yeah. Just Security gives us, and actually the New York Times even earlier this week, gives us more information of exactly what kind of direct knowledge these individuals had and their participation. So I think if Democrats, now that they're in this phase of negotiating, I'm sure tomorrow is going to be full of lots of bluster on the Senate floor. That'll be great. However, I think this gives Schumer and Pelosi some leverage. It's not just about Mitch McConnell. It's about those senators who are vulnerable. Right. It is, a, right? That's, right. I, I think it doesn't move those needle, move the needle with those enough Republicans. Four Republican senators is what would be needed for anything at the end of the day, 51 votes wins. I haven't seen that yet. You know, you have Collins and Murkowski who express concerns, 
But then they also say we're concerned with the democratic process or in Murkowski's case, she said, I'm open to waiting to punt on the witnesses until after the case. So if they're not willing to get behind Democrats in this push for firsthand witnesses and documents, it's just not going to happen. Hmm. You look like you're about to say something. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just skeptical that there's enough enthusiasm uh, to on this issue, on the issue of witnesses inside a Senate trial among normal Americans to put enough pressure exactly, on a right. couple of senators for them to go, oh, yeah, we're going to change the way we do this. I, I don't see it party happening. And Buck McConnell, it's very hard to imagine. The president venting about a lot of things on Twitter today, as this is want. He quoted a conservative commentator from The New York Post saying, quote, it seems the Democrats have shot themselves in the foot in one, one more way. And this president is being persecuted over three years with one investigation after another. And that really plays to his base. Uh, it's it's an argument to, to make because, I mean, things are not clear cut here. We had the impeachment proceeding and then it's just kind of, as, as Mary Catherine points out, it's just kind of on hold and we're not really sure what's going to happen. And, and the country is divided, right? Like, even though some polls have showed that the, the majority of the country thinks that he did something wrong, that the president did something wrong, they are divided on what happens next. Uh, and so I think probably what you're having now is the Democrats trying to decide what are they, what type of pressure they can really put on President Trump. He was saying that he wanted a trial, but in the past few days he's kind of been, you know, hinting that maybe he doesn't care what happens. I think he wants to be vindicated. I think he's going to want some type of trial. But uh, it, it's not clear how much the Democrats are really going to be able to dictate that. But are, the, are they putting, are the Democrats putting enough pressure directly on Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, uh, Mitt Romney, uh, uh, any, any other vulnerable Republican with ads, with Democratic yeah. grassroots activists. I mean, I, I haven't seen that. I agree with you. I haven't seen enough of it. I think there have been some efforts. It was a little bit challenging, I think, during the holidays. Now that we're back in January, I think it'll be a lot easier. And again, as long as they keep it simple, I think there is a very fair argument to be made about the facts and the truth. Everyone stick around. We've got more to talk about. And we do have some breaking news on the Hanukkah staff, including an update on one of the victims who is fighting for his life. Stay with us. Some breaking news for you in our national lead. Heightened security on display across New York City and the surrounding area after the 15th anti-Semitic attack was reported just yesterday. One of the victims of Saturday's Hanukkah stabbing spree in Muncie, New York, suffered severe brain damage. Today, Joseph Newman's family said it's possible that the 72-year-old may never regain consciousness. CNN national correspondent Bryn Gingras joins us now live from Rockland County, New York, where officials just wrapped a news conference. And Bryn, update us on uh, Mr. Newman's condition. Yeah, it was a pretty emotional news conference from this family, uh, the Joseph Newman. Essentially, they said that he underwent a surgery this morning uh, to help him eat and breathe, but he has never regained consciousness since this attack happened on Saturday, and they don't think he will, or at least that's what doctors are telling him at this point, or telling the family, rather. Uh, I want to show you a picture, though, of his condition in the hospital. I want to warn you also, though, that this picture is, is very graphic, uh, but the family released it, and, and that's why we're showing it to you. They say they want people to see this picture because because they want everyone to see the extent of his injuries. Uh, you can see how horrific uh, in the condition he is right now. And they say it's important to know what happened here in their community. I want you to also take a listen to more of what they said uh, about this attack. The doctors do not have high hopes for him. He may never be, I mean, if he wakes up, he may never be able to walk talk or even process speech again. We want our kids to go to school and feel safe. We want to go to our synagogues and feel safe. We want to go to groceries and malls and feel safe. 
And yeah, Jake, they're saying basically they want their father to be a symbol of change if anything comes out of this. Jake. And Bryn, what, what types of additional security measures have been dispatched across New York? Yeah, across New York, Andrew, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo is uh, stepping up state police patrols in Jewish communities all across the state. Here in this county, we're learning that city administrators are adding cameras all around these cities to have uh, a little bit more security protection as well as patrols. And then you mentioned New York City. Uh, we've been noting a number of attacks there. The Strategic Response Group, which are those highly trained uh, law enforcement officials, they're going to be on the grounds as well in Jewish communities all across New York City, Jake. All right, Bryn Gingras in Rockland County, New York. Thank you. Thank you so much. We are fact-checking the new numbers that President Trump is using to attack House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And let's just say he probably didn't read his own administration's report. Stay with us. The national lead now, President Trump over the holiday season, pulling some of the least fortunate people in this country, it's millions of homeless, into the impeachment fight, using their suffering as a cudgel against Speaker Nancy Pelosi since many live in the San Francisco area, which she represents in Congress. The tweet came after the Trump administration put out a press release jumping the gun in a way on its own report on homeless numbers. We asked CNN's Nick Watt to look into the suffering behind the mean tweets to find out more. The eyes have it. The eyes have it. A couple of days after California's Nancy Pelosi banged that gavel impeaching the president, the Department of Housing and Urban Development issued a rather unusual press release. Secretary Carson certifies annual data. Homelessness ticked up in 2019, driven by major increases in California. There's enough of an increase in California, 16.4%, to drive the entire equation up. The department's annual homeless report hasn't been released yet, but this preemptive press release was used by President Trump over the holidays to attack the speaker. Crazy Nancy Pelosi should spend more time in her decaying city and less time on the impeachment hoax. According to Trump, California leads the nation by far in both the number of homeless people. Well, that's true, but per capita, New York, Hawaii, and outside the president's own front door, Washington, D.C., are actually all higher. California also accused of leading the nation in percentage increase in the homeless population. False. New Mexico is number one. Everywhere in the nation um, is seeing issues around homelessness, and a lot of this has to do with the affordability of housing. Affordability in California is incredibly challenging. I think the latest statistics show that you, you have to make $130,000 in order to afford a home in Los Angeles. Tiffany Casterline has been homeless in Hollywood about a year. You had a job. Yes. But you were still living on the street. Yes. Why? Because it wasn't enough to pay for the rent in California. Says she was fired when her boss found out. This isn't permanent. It's temporary. Okay. That's what I tell myself. <laughs> okay, yeah, I get that. Trump also tweeted that California and New York must call and politely ask for help would be so easy with competence. <laughs> well, if it were easy, it'd be done by now. So here's another stat that I pulled out of the HUD raw data that unsurprisingly did not make it into that press release. Under President Obama, homelessness nationwide fell by 14 percent. Under President Trump, the latest HUD stats show it's already up by 3 percent. So Obama good, Trump bad. Well, no, not necessarily, because 
you know, there can be a lag time between cause and effect with homelessness. So some of the seeds for that Trump bump might have been sown under Obama. So what that actually tells us, that's just another example of how easy it is, Jake, to take data, manipulate it, massage it to score political points. As the old saying goes, lies, damn lies and statistics. Jake. Of course, you could just approach this as a humanitarian gesture, of course, uh, and realize these are all our problem. Uh, Nick Watt, live in Los Angeles. Thank you so much for that report. Appreciate it. Conditions are so bad that fire nados could break out as deadly wildfires threaten thousands. It's about to get worse. Stay with us. In today's world lead, firefighters from the U.S. are in Australia trying to help that country battle its worst wildfires in decades, more intense and larger than in the past, and also to blame for killing, as of now, 18 people. Australian authorities declaring a state of emergency along much of the country's southeast coastline, where conditions are expected to get worse. CNN's Anna Corn is in that region. She joins us now live. Anna, the, the rush is on to save lives there. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Jake. At the moment, the priority is getting people out of these fire zones. We are here in Nara on the south coast of, of New South Wales. The entire state has been declared a, a state of emergency. Uh, and the priority is getting people out before the return of catastrophic conditions, which they are expecting tomorrow. We're talking about, you know, 40 degree plus temperatures. That's obviously a 100 degree Fahrenheit. Uh, it, it is just frightening as to, to what we could be facing tomorrow. On top of that, ferocious winds. And that is what just rips through these areas. Much of it state uh, forests and national parks. Uh, this is the south coast of, of New South Wales. Many people come here for their, their summer holidays. And, and, and that is what authorities want these people to get out, holidaymakers and residents. The problem, Jake, is that the, the, the fires are burning on these major thoroughfares. People are stuck. Uh, so, as I say, priority today is to get these people out. And Anna, quickly, if you could, uh, is it the winds uh, and, and the heat that's making these fires so bad compared to previous years? Well, this is the worst fire season on record. Uh, not only are you talking about extreme heat and, and a longer period, uh, but uh, Australia has been facing the worst drought on record. Uh, so Australia is really suffering drought and, and bushfires. And you would have seen Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, being heckled uh, by residents at one of these uh, townships that was absolutely decimated. Uh, so, uh, as I say, Jake, Australia is suffering. Anna Corrin, thank you and stay safe. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.